call it. Welcome to episode 24 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Donica Tiernan watch two historical epics written by screenwriter Robert Bolt. 1984's The Bounty and 1986's The Mission. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Please follow Call It Friendo on Instagram, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes or any or all of the above. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at callitfriendo at gmail.com. When I was a young boy, my mama said to me, there's only one girl in the world for you, and she probably lives in Tahiti. season two of david simon's series uh the deuce um and congratulations given the way that i watch tv i probably won't end up watching season three for uh, about six months or so but i mean i love it i could pour over it all day just like i think it's the most i think it's the most humane thing that i've seen of him like there, there's because the thing is about like um i don't know something like the wire it just feels like why are you sticking to this why are you doing this it's like the whole cast has cancer all the time yes it's slightly depressing like nobody's coming out of it unscathed i mean and i i love the wire but i I don't know there's just something you're allowed to have more affection for the characters in uh in the deuce you're allowed to hope more for them and that's really nice maggie gyllenhaal and james franco are just terrific actors there I I completely forgot Maggie Gyllenhaal was in it. As I said before in the previous episode, I've watched only I watched the first four episodes of it of season one. So I just had no idea where it was going. I don't really know why I stopped, but that must have been at least two or three years ago. Pick it up again. Go on. I'm yeah, sure you I will. Have time I will this eventually. Week. Um, I don't know about that. So I only share things on my Instagram that I enjoyed watching. And this uh, week I had the misfortune to watch a, a big bunch of pretentious shit. Uh, which I'm, I didn't share. It's um, uh, because I saw it on some list or other of people saying, "Oh, it's one, of, it's one of the best films of the last whatever," and it's this Argentinian film called "The Headless Woman." Mm. Have, you ever, have you ever heard I've of this? Never heard of it. No. Well, it's about this lady who may or may not have run over somebody driving from A to B. It could have been a person, could have been a dog, not even the audience know. And then we get to watch her slowly but surely lose her marbles. Now, in case there's people out there that absolutely love this movie, I can totally get what they're going on about. Like, this lady gives an amazing performance. Um, But you're basically just watching her trying to interact with her life while holding this inside her head and she does she gives a really really good performance but it's my god it's pretentious and boring like it's so not interesting ken loach's style of filmmaking works because he always has a plot there's just no plot in this so i did not like it but i then i watched freaky which is the horror movie version of freaky friday uh, where a teenage girl switches bodies with a serial killer by accident oh nice And uh, the serial killer played by Vince Vaughn. So you get to watch Vince Vaughn being a teenage girl. And he's excellent. He's the best thing in the film. Ah, quality. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Well, he's really good. The film itself is about as good as it could be. I I definitely want to watch it just off of just hearing that premise alone. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But then last night watched Ramin Barini's latest film, White Tiger, The White Tiger. It's on Netflix, and that is really good. I really recommend that. It's just completely vibrant and electric. It's based off a best-selling book from a few years ago. I think the book won the Booker Prize. It's actually, yeah, and the fellow who wrote the book went to university with uh, Ramin Barini in uh, New York, and uh, they've Things got to come full circle and they got to work together. But that's a really, really solid flick. And of course, I watched all of Adam Curtis's uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head, which is just mind boggling stuff. Exactly. That's all I can think of every time you bring this up. Who knew that Adam Curtis would get around to making an eight hour documentary about um, the seminal pop hit by Kylie Minogue? Yeah, which we did reference last time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will eventually get around to watching this. It sounds interesting. I've heard a few people talking about it. Mm. And what have you been watching? Well, I watched some stuff that you've already seen. Uh, I watched Greenland, the Gerard Butler asteroid disaster film. I'd agree more or less with what you said on the previous episode. It's a solid disaster film. Uh, the, effects, the effects are quite impressive, given it didn't have a massive budget. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's another film hurt by COVID. It was released theatrically, but in so few places that it didn't It didn't make very much money. I see they're really trying to push it on streaming at the moment. Uh, it did make its budget back theatrically, though. I liked it, it but... Uh, go on. I just wish they'd cut the final few minutes and left a cliffhanger. That really would have elevated the film overall for me. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, but I, uh, there's no way that that was going to happen. That's a shame to me. Yeah. I think because I think that, that, that would have stayed with the tone of the film. I think. Yeah, because the film, like, I enjoyed the effects. You see, and I saw a trailer for it after having watched the film. I saw the trailer where you see the the first kind of asteroid impact, and it sends the shockwave across all of the U.S. That is really powerful. Just you see the shockwave, mm. and he get he goes flying through the air. Yeah, all of those scenes worked really well. I think, like, um, I remember. Have you seen, um, oh, what's it called, Guillermo del Toro's film about big, scary monsters? Pacific Rim. Pacific yeah. Rim, no, yeah. no, yeah, yeah. I haven't watched it. Congratulations to both of us for not saying rim job there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, so tempted. That's <laughs> normally what I call it. Uh, and Anyway, uh, one thing that I, I thought was semi-revolutionary about the way that film was shot was um, all of the effect shots are done by only realistic perspective like there's no fake drone shots circling around the monsters they're all from the ground or from helicopters Mm. or from yeah and i think uh, greenland approached its um, disaster movie effects in the same way and i I just i think that's the way to shoot that kind of thing Mm. like i think even in stuff like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like the main issue that people have with every, uh, almost every film ending with a death from above is it just, A, it gets repetitive and B, you the shots, yeah. you can't form yourself around the shots. Whereas like amongst the best of those is probably uh, the first Avengers movie where a lot of the battle mm. is on the ground and yeah, you know, in the streets of New York. Yeah, yeah. And you get more into it uh, like that. And I think Greenland does a really, really good job of doing that. It's the, the, the subplot with him having had an affair is an odd one, isn't it? Yeah. There's some of the, some of the background character stuff, like when they get to, uh, the wife's father, played by Scott Glenn. Mm. Just everything around that kind of, that part of the story felt like it was from some other film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I agree. What's the name of that lady who was the uh, companion from uh, Firefly? Morena Baccarin. Okay, and what yeah. else have you been watching? Anything else? Yeah, something else that you've seen. I also hoovered up the entirety of uh, Ted Lasso <laughs> season one. Oh, right. Do you like it? Yeah, yeah. I think what impressed me about the show is it feels almost equally aimed at UK and US audiences, and it doesn't dumb <laughs> it doesn't dumb things down too much. Yeah, I haven't finished the first season, but I really enjoy. Oh, it. really? I've yeah. already I I went through the entire thing earlier this week, and uh, it's nice to see British cynicism pierced every so often. Mm. You see, I'm and just... I agree. I agree with you that it strikes like a similar tone to Cobra Kai. Yeah, it's ju- it's just it, it, nice. And it doesn't seem like just aimlessly commercial. If the, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but just uh, like, you know, I mean, um, so many comedy shows are just kind of made uh, by committee, let's say. But there's there's a fair bit of heart to Ted Lasso. Oh, yeah, I, I think there's I think it's mostly heart because mm. it's it's not it's not an outright comedy, I would say. Like, it's funny enough, but mm. it's it's more likable than being funny. And you J- just like spending time with those characters. Yeah, Jason Sudeikis. Is, Jason Sudeikis is just so just wonderful in it. Yeah, he's very good. I think the real masterstroke with it is having rather than having just one fish out of water character, there's two of them. There's two coaches working together, so it means that they can both talk about how things would be in the U.S. or like the differences mm. with you know UK culture. But it's probably it's the most accurate thing i've ever seen like tv show accurate about uk football hmm. like just just about about the nature of football itself and how it's viewed has there ever been a decent sports movie about the beautiful game not off the top of my head uh the first thing that comes to mind is awful is uh uh shot at glory with robert duval and ali mccoist mm. which was uh that was horrendous are uh, you a fan of Catholic. um escape to victory well that's classic but mm. A bit silly. Sylvester Stallone playing a goalkeeper. Uh, he just he looks like he's never touched a football before. Mm. But then you've got like Pele and a few other greats in there. Can you think of like sports movies fe- featuring field sports that kind of nail the on-pitch action? There must be some like uh, American football film that's decent. I mean, I'm thinking of any given Sunday, but I don't mm. remember anything on the field. I just remember the sort of... Yeah, the off uh, pitch. Life is a game of inches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We claw with our fingernails. Oh, God, we're douchebags. Yeah. Definitely. Tonally, because it's, it's produced by Apple TV, it mm. reminds me, it's a similar tone to their other comedy show that I watched last year, Mythic Quest. Oh, I haven't watched that. Is it good? Did you watch that? I liked it. It's about the, the, the games industry. Hmm, cool. Uh, and I, I thought it was really good. It's... um. What's his name from Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Rob McKenna-Henny, 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 whatever he's called him. McElhenny. Yeah, no, exactly. Mac from Matilda's Son. (laughs) I'm still watching on a week-to-week basis their uh, TV show um, Servant, which... Oh, yeah. It's fallen out of um, critical love somewhat for its second season, but I'm I'm still loving it. It's just, it's a... It's a bananas show. That's the thing. Like, there's hardly anything on Apple. But I think everything they've made um, has a lot of charisma. Well, I went through and looked at some of the stuff that they've made, and a lot of it is really poorly rated. So it could just be that they made, like, three or four good shows and then a big bunch of shite. Well, the morning show is very good. And um, C, I really liked C. People uh, like What's that. I don't even know what that is. People like shitting on C, but I really just enjoy watching it. So C is um, Stephen Knight's post-apocalyptic, yeah, post-apocalyptic story set 
in a future where everybody is blind. Jason mm. and Jason Momoa play, and it's it's all oh. broken down to tribalism and stuff. And Jason Momoa play like who's just brilliant in it plays this um, tribal leader who has to go on the hunt to uh, get. It's been so long since I watched it. Get somebody back, basically, and like you know they've got everything sort of worked out in the world, like how the fighting style of everybody being blind, for example, right. and, and how like it's if I. I absolutely loved it. People love shitting on it. But uh, I, I, what can I say? It tickled me exactly right. Post-apocalyptic, I'm mostly there. With Jason Momoa, sure, sign me up. And is that a TV series or a film? It's a TV series. Ah, I've never I, heard of it. I don't think they've done many films. They did, Sophie Coppola's last film appeared on there first, and I quite enjoyed Sophie, that. Sophie, you call her. Are you on a, a friendly basis? <laughs> Sophia. What's the name of it with them? Um, well, Bill Murray is in it. With... Yeah, no, I, I have no idea what it's called. It's called Sophia Coppola's Last Film. That's the title of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very much... Sophia Coppola's most recent film. It's very much, uh, you know... Lost in, lost in translation too. That's what it looks like. I it's, haven't seen it. Though. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very much in the same. I think all most of her films are in the same vein, to be honest. And I enjoy them. Yeah. Um. But yeah, and I haven't seen all of them. But some of the, like yeah, because some of them just look entirely. I mean, if you've seen Lost in Translation, you could probably sign out. Sorry, Sofia Coppola. I am sorry. Of all the new stuff that you watched, how did uh, they rank among the stuff that you had to watch for the podcast? I probably enjoyed the films that we watched for the well considering it's greenland versus the bounty or the mission <laughs> to be honest i quite liked the films this week i was i was pleasantly surprised by the bounty because i didn't expect much from it and uh we'll get to the mission when we get to the mission maybe we should mm. start with the bounty what did you how, what was your overall take on the bounty well i'll be showing my hand a little to say that this sort of thing is very much my bag baby yeah you like boats you're a big you're i can see you sailing i can see you being a pirate <laughs> Just I've, a, I've... a general sailor boy I have read several books about uh, pirates. I've read several volumes of Patrick O'Brien's Impenetrable Navy series, and I adore Peter Weir's film adaptation of it. I, uh, this kind of thing, and historical epics with uh, that are completely inaccessible to women. This sort of thing is my bag, baby. I put this on to it like say, like at lunch one day to to watch it and um Belen said to me oh maybe i'll tune into maybe i'll uh watch too and i said no nah, no nah, it's not for you just trust me and then i ha i was watching it with my headphones on she just saw the barest glimpse of men walking around with their old with their old timey hats and just just started pissing <laughs> pissing herself laughing she's just like yeah this is the opposite of everything i want to see <laughs> but yeah this i love this kind of crack i love it <laughs> So there's my hand. I'll come to my opinions as we mm. as we go through. But yeah, I, I was, ple as I say, pleasantly surprised. So The Bounty is a 1984 historical drama film directed by Roger Donaldson and starring Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins. It's a retelling of the famous mutiny on the Bounty event when a group of sailors led by Fletcher Christian overthrew Captain William Bly and set up a colony on Ladsau Island, later renamed to Pitcairn <laughs> Island. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is lads as far as the eye can see in this film yeah 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 12 year old Donna Tiernan would have uh, lauded over this one yeah that's right just the 12 year old version of you sure sure <laughs> sure 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 
Yeah, some great oh, lads here. Oh, to be a casting agent on the bounty. <laughs> I'm surprised there hasn't been some awful stories have come out about this. Like, surely there must have been some... There must have been some less palatable things going on on the production of this film. I heard some things about Mel... Apparently Mel, Mel Gibson was drinking heavily, as was his way. And uh, Anthony Hopkins was slightly worried because Anthony Hopkins has famously been sober since about 1975. Mm, yeah, that's right. So he was, he was very worried for Mel Gibson's health. Really? Mm, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Because uh, basically Mel was just out on the lash every night during filming. Jesus, yeah, as as is his want. Um, Indeed. I think, uh, just to start the proceedings, I think Anthony Hopkins is fantastic in this film. Yeah, I enjoyed him. Oh, I thought enough. he was, I thought he was good, but uh, he didn't compare to some of the Tahitian actresses. I thought they <laughs> had a certain charm. <laughs> They're really elevated. I thought they were. I thought what they displayed of themselves was was very brave <laughs> and, and laudable. No, yeah, okay, sure. Ant- Anthony Hopkins is. Uh, I mean, it, it's Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, but how, that, how can that, he not be good? Okay, if and if ever an actor has been overshadowed by a particular performance, it's Anthony Hopkins. You wouldn't be unfair in saying that the man hasn't really acted since 1992 because he doesn't really need to. He just oh, I'll be doing the same performance every time. Yeah, yeah, he's just lends something gravitas, very similar to like Samuel L. Morgan Jackson Freeman. or Morgan Freeman, for example. Yeah, but um, I really feel like Anthony Hopkins was, I don't know, still on a kind of a proving ground at this point. And um, yeah, wow, I just think he just eats up the scenery. I think he's excellent. He's good. He's obviously very good. But the fact that he's playing, I mean, Captain like William Bly was from Cornwall, so he's doing the full on Cornish pirate accent at times. Mm. You're on my boat. Well, it wouldn't be a million miles from Hopkins's. Like Hopkins is from from Wales, isn't he? Yeah, it's not a million miles. It's Mm. different countries. Yeah, but they still have that kind of silly thing. Yeah. So this is a story that's been told on film many times before, probably Mm. most famously with Clark Gable and Charles Lochton in 1935's Mutiny on the Bounty. That film was remade in 1962 with Marlon Brando and Trevor Howard in the lead roles. Yeah, famously a disaster. Have you seen either of those? I have not. But, I I mean, it would lead into the correct question to ask here. What do you think about uh, this story is so compelling to have been retold so many times and to... I was going to ask you the exact same question. Like, why do they keep remaking... Like, why do they keep remaking this story? Because, like, I don't think I've seen either of those films, but the story beats were all very clear in my head before watching it. And I'm guessing that's just because it's such such a well-known story. It's seeped into the culture. I don't know. I don't know. Is it something of, like escaping the horrible monotony of the United Kingdom that people are like, yeah, I wish we could just fucking mutiny and go to a place where lady... Where well, I think I, there's... A, a beautiful ladies are topless all the time and it's sunny. I think there's an element to that. I think it's quite... It, um, if you look at it, if you give history the long view, this story comes out as quite parabolic in terms of everything that was to go down with the British Empire. And you could, like, this essentially, I mean, this is a story about bad, boorish leadership and the consequences therein. 
that like that's that's the the parable that's going on here and you could it's in a microcosm what would happen to the british empire and all empires with that kind of boorish leadership you know what i mean it's because of this kind of thing that for example the catalan independence movement uh, is still you know a going concern because you know the Spanish government keep trying to meet it with batons instead of legitimacy, for example. And I, I think because this really did happen and you can you can look at the British Empire through the prism of this story and understand a little bit of what went down, I think that's kind of what makes it so compelling. I also think British people have a tendency to kowtow to authority. And most people's biggest fantasy is telling their boss to fuck off. And this is like the ultimate version of that. Like, fuck you. I'm taking the boat and I'm going to my island with my beautiful topless lady. Yeah. I, does anybody win this film, really? I guess maybe Captain Bly at the end. A little bit, yeah, I suppose. So this iteration of the story is based on the novel Captain Bly and Mr. Christian by Richard Howe and claims to be a more factual account of the events. In this film, Bly is not painted as a villain, and it is shown that Bly and Christian had a pre-existing relationship before the voyage. Which is true. Yeah, so this is mm. the, the, the factual version of the story. The script was written by Richard Bolt and originally conceived as a project for his longtime collaborator David Lean. Lean pictured telling the story in two films, one named The Lawbreakers that dealt with the voyage out to Tahiti and the subsequent mutiny, and the second one, which was to be named The Long Arm, a study of the journey and the mutineers after the mutiny, as well as the Admiral, Admiralty's response in sending out the frigate HMS Pandora. Jesus, isn't it mad the stuff that David Lean used to get away with? Just making four-hour films, just Just mad big-scale pictures. Like, Have you ever seen Lawrence of Arabia? No, it's one of those ones that I've, I think I owned it on VHS and just couldn't bring myself to watch it. Wait until you get an opportunity on the big screen. I will eventually. I genuinely, obviously, I will eventually watch it. But it's just one of those things. I would just, every time I sat down to watch, I was like, oh, God. I would say, honestly, just biggest screen possible. Because there's there's hardly any story in it, really. But you spend most of the film with your... You're not selling it to me. (laughs) (laughs) But you spend most... Nothing happens. You spend most of the film with your jaw on the floor because there'll just be a, a wide shot with a thousand lads on horses charging towards another thousand lads on horses. It's madness. Do you know, that's the, that's the way people used to make movies. And David Lean's pictures made so much money that he could kind of get away with it. And then he lost a lot of money on Ryan's daughter, I believe. So uh, David Lean's two-picture idea, ultimately that project fell through and Dino De Laurentiis hired a relatively untested young Australian director, Roger Donaldson, to take the reins. Mm. The film had a budget of around 25 million US dollars, around 4 million of which was spent on building a full-size replica of HMS Bounty. Yeah, Roger Donaldson. Have you ever seen his film, uh, No Way Out? I have indeed, with Kevin Costner. Great it's, film. Uh, yeah, it's solid. It's uh, a famous twist ending. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, is it? No. No. It's no. famous for it. It's famous for its twist ending. So I, yeah, I'd recommend watching No Way Out. Oh God! I also it's watched, such a terrific I watched, ending. It's a great film, but I I prefer his uh, magnum opus Cocktail, which is truly a, a wonderful insight into the life of a cocktail bartender. Did Roger Donaldson make Cocktail? Wow. Roger Donald Roger Donaldson's career is mental. He made Dante's Peak <laughs> cocktail. <laughs> 13 Days. Remember that one? Oh, that's a good film. The, yeah, it's a good film. But like, that's what I mean. He's, he's all over the place. Cocktail. He's, 
I mean, that is instant. That is simultaneously one of the most memorable slash forgettable films that's ever been made. Like, everybody remembers Cocktail, but to, for the life of me right now, I can't remember what the F-bomb it was about. He, so Tom Cruise is doing all the cocktail, the jazzy cocktail stuff. I remember that. Right, and he's like, it's about, he's out basically shagging all of the customers of this bar, but then there's this one girl that he falls for, and then it's, I think the whole film is him going like, oh, should I end up like Brian Brown, like this old grizzled australian who doesn't have anyone should i if i continue down the path of shagging literally every female that enters the bar or should i settle down with this one woman i think that's that's the that's the great conflict for the character and is there a director's cut where he just decides to stay an absolute legend yes and just i, I hope so just shag a 10, a ten hour <laughs> because i'm going to tahiti <laughs> yurt, yurt. The film was shot on location over 20 weeks. Many of the shots of the ship were filmed in Oponohu Bay, Murea, French Polynesia, which is the same bay Captain James Cook anchored in in 1777. Oh. Yeah, so that I think that's one of the great strengths of this film is the fact that it's actually filmed on location. And again, I would say the same about uh, the mission as well. It's like in the 80s, mm. they were just go going to these places. Yeah. Filming in these beautiful, accurate locations, and it really is part. It's it's impressive. Yeah, yeah. It's just the the difference between wages of fear and sorcerer all over again. Like yes, it, yeah, yeah. yes. We're in sorcerer territory here. In terms of casting, the role of Bly came down to Hopkins and Oliver Reed, with the production opting for Big Anthony. The original choice for Fletcher Christian was Christopher Reeve. One of the notes that I had about Gibson that would have been doubly true of Christopher Reeves is he's just too handsome for this world. He's unbelievably beautiful. There yeah. were times where I was almost looking at him as much as the native lady's breasts. <laughs> but it, it, he's like, a beautiful, beautiful man. Oh, totally. And it's like, okay, if you compare this, I'm not saying it's a failing of the film because, it's, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> You're going to not cast the super hot guy? It's like if you look at something like um, Master and Commander, which, I mean, it's just impossible not to compare these two. Peter Weir roughs up his cast sufficiently that you're more there. And particularly in the first half of the film, before they arrive in Tahiti, uh, any time the camera like lands on Mel Gibson, that completely makes you forget about Liam Neeson's thuggish face. And you ju you're just like, oh, my, yeah, OK, the movie star. There's a movie star. He's very, Liam, very good looking. Liam Neeson looks like sloth from the Goonies. <laughs> but <laughs> but on, like sloth on his best day. Yeah, but he does. Not, he does he not looks, look handsome. He looks in this. normal in the mission. But that's a weird thing. Two years later, yeah. he looks normal in the mission. But in the bounty, he looks like he cut his own hair. I think they just wanted. To, <laughs> they wanted to really clarify this guy's not the sharpest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would, this must have been in the Black Bastard days. Yeah, indeed. This is when he was walking around with his kosh. Yeah. Looking for another victim. Uh, another actor another actor who was supposed to be in the film but dropped out in the end was Hugh Grant, who was going to be cast as Peter Haywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have been toughish enough, I suppose. I mean, with Daniel um, Day-Lewis yeah, yeah. in, Day in the role, we have essentially got... But that's a different person. Daniel Day-Lewis oh. plays Friar. Haywood is... Haywood is the... is one of the very young-looking officers. Okay. I think Haywood is the guy who maybe looks a bit like Thomas Turgus, the kid from uh, This Is England. 
Oh, okay. one of the guys yeah. kind of looks a bit like him. That's him. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I, I know, also, we should we should point out this film has got like three pe- three cast members from Vera Drake in it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Pete, uh, what's his name? Pete Pete Davis, who plays Vera, Vera Drake's wife. He's one of the he's one of the main guys in this. Yeah, yeah. He's a bit he's a bit of a worm tongue. But who would have thought that he was like watching Vera Drake? You wouldn't think like Vera Drake's husband is mates with mel gibson yeah ah the crazy world of acting right maybe they're mates maybe maybe he kind of co-signs some of some of mel gibson maybe he writes mel gibson's opinions for him that's what i'm suggesting (laughs) he came up with sugar tits and all this stuff no no wonder no wonder mel gibson is obsessed and calling people sugar tits after the experience he had on this film do you know um <laughs> all he thinks about her tits probably i blame roger donaldson for that good god <laughs> but you know like before all of that crack came out about Mel gibson he he was famously fun to work with people loved working oh, with him yeah, yeah he was fucking getting wrecked constantly yeah yeah and he was like a a, a merry prankster i'm sure Mm. So the film starts with credits over imagery of Tahiti and Vangelis's 1980s synth score. Yeah, loads. did this did the score strike you as a bit out of place? Mm, in parts, but not not garish. Not like um, in uh, the Year of Living Dangerously that time. I guess it was the 1980s, and they wanted to to make it clear that this is a different version. This is a different film. This mm. that was the music that was popular at the time. I guess so. Yeah, it was definitely different. I thought the opening score was pretty was was pretty cool. I I was just thinking that like why the only reason we're having all these shots is to you know get a blast of this cool score because I liked it. The narrative structure of the film is Anthony Hopkins is Captain Bly being court-martialed for losing his boat, the bounty on a voyage to take breadfruit from Tahiti to Jamaica. The fruit was required to feed plantation slaves. The British Navy at their finest there. Mm. What is breadfruit? Well, you see, it's fruit. That's it. That's the end of my sentence. Ah, fair enough. They show you what it looks like. It is a fruit. Mm. I've never heard of it. I've never tasted it. But if it's good enough for uh, for uh, plantation slaves, then <laughs> it's good enough for me. <laughs> so Bly explains that the first thing he did upon being tasked with the trip was to cru- was to recruit his mate Fletcher Christian, played by the beautiful Mel Gibson. After that, he brought on board Daniel Day-Lewis as sailing master John Fryer. Who is essentially Reynolds Woodcock. Who's that? That's the main character. Oh, from... yeah, from Fa- Phantom Thread. Yeah, yeah, he's playing. He's quite, he looks like, uh, yeah, he might be gay mm. and he's slightly repressed. He has that, he has a sort of kind of bitchy anger throughout the entire thing. He just, his face constantly looks, he's sort of pouting. Well, no better time to go sailing. Yep, he's in the he's in the right profession. The ship set sail. All the exterior shots of the boat are extremely impressive. You really feel the scale of what they were going for. Mm. Uh, but the below deck scenes were all filmed in a UK studio. Yeah, that's one thing. It's like again to compare it with Master and Commander. They filmed everything on the boat on the yeah. water, and it's just shaky yeah. as hell all the yeah. time. And it it really really works. Uh, just you you get sea legs watching that film, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's I've just seen that film so many times that the that that these scenes were filmed in a studio was immediately apparent to me. Yeah. Early on, we see the first bit of unrest in the crew when Liam Neeson, who appears in both these week's films, uh, beats the shit out of a very young Neil Morrissey. For him sitting in his seat. 
That's right, men behaving badly indeed. Yeah, this was his first film appearance. Not that he had many film appearances throughout his career, but again, a very beautiful young man in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would soon hook up with uh, Rachel Weisz, I believe. Good on you. <laughs> yeah, uh, you've mentioned this before. As... <laughs> Have I mentioned that before? (laughs) Yeah, when we talked about something with Rachel Weisz, it was maybe in the Lobster episode, I don't know. Oh, right, okay, well, fair play to him. I I edit these things, I I remember literally everything. As they continue their journey, there's a growing sense of resentment among the crew for some of the officers' demands, particularly when Bly forces them to river dance on deck for 20 minutes a day. Which really happened. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that was nice. I think it's a good... I would enjoy that exercise. I don't know why Liam Neeson doesn't like it. But that got a bit of a belly laugh out of me when he's, you know, he's asked to explain that in court, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, there's this even better bit later on, which I'll get to, which of, of, that, of that structure. Yeah, yeah. So their planned route to Tahiti is to go around the bottom of South America, Chile's Cape Horn. They face a massive storm and very nearly sink, forcing Bly to chart another route, the long way around, heading east. Mm. Around this time, Friar uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is busted down for insubordination and Christian is promoted in his place. I think it was at at that exact moment um, that I made the note, Gibson might be too handsome. That's what I was thinking during that. But also those storm sequences, oh man. Those are, that's, it's just, that's, that's what you enjoy, isn't oh, it? Oh, I love that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and yeah. I, think, I think they did those really well as well. I think they just felt chaotic and crazy and scary. It's pretty cool. Like, I have spent long stretches of time just watching compilations of ships at storm on YouTube. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, it, you know, it's just, just something that's so terrifying to me. Like, watching, like, you can watch huge freighter ships just being battered around like they're nothing. Mm. There's really good clips of that on YouTube from the cabins, oh, you know. Oh, Poseidon. Indeed, yeah. So, uh, they eventually make landfall in Tahiti, and it's just lads out as far as the eye can see. <laughs> <laughs> as yeah. they are as they are greeted by the men and topless women of the tribe the friendliest tribe in the history of the world it needs to be pointed out i gripe i, I always gripe slightly with um how good looking the past tends to be one of the like have you ever watched um the uh, paul giamatti starring uh series john adams about the second president no. of the united states well one thing i give major credence to it is everybody's teeth goes to shit and everybody looks really unhealthy and and because they went for that like um they uh and just when they arrive in tahiti i mean the, it is ridiculous everyone a, is beautiful oh my god is there a, is it possible that that was what that was like but more so in this film, I would say, in, in I think the mission is a bit more realistic for that. It's not just, mm. you know, not everyone is just, is beautiful. Mm. But in this, they are. It's ridiculous. Yeah. There's a lovely piece of mise-en-scene as they're approaching Tahiti, uh, and everybody's just oogling the native women. And then there's a particular shot of um, Gibson next to Hopkins, and there's just a cannon jutting out of the out of the ship like an erect, <laughs> uh, like an erect penis. It's amazing. That does sound familiar. Is yeah. there not like a guy like lying on the cannon as well? Oh, I feel like in one scene, there's like a guy's got like a cannon between his legs. Yeah, yeah. It's very it's very funny. Like I mean, it's it's not there by accident. Like I'll put it like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they're greeted by the Tahitian king Taina, who agrees to give them the breadfruit they need. 
As is tradition, Bly must sleep with one of the king's wives. Uh, unfortunately, on an island of tens, this wife is, to put it tactfully, a, a larger lady. And she looks less than impressed when Bly gets Christian to interrupt their planned lovemaking, letting uh, the captain off the hook. That's a bit That's a bit shady from King Tyne, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure he's got better wives than that. Well, no, I think it's I think it's shitty of Captain Bly for for turning down for this, not checking her native lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He should I'd, have done the captain the captain's duty. I think I again I think uh, Hopkins is terrific in in that whole scene. I just think he like uh, plays it very well. Uh, it's like oh, I'd hope to avoid this. But that 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 scene's from a comedy though. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Which is, that's what I was saying before about the, the, like, because of the narrative structure of Hopkins telling the story to the, to the tribunal, the mm. whole section reminded me of the movie Road Trip, when Tom Green is telling his story to the tour group and someone says, girls just don't stand around naked. And he goes, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of Captain Bly explaining, <laughs> explaining, so this other girl walks up, totally hot, <laughs> naked, really naked. <laughs> Yeah, God. Yeah, he's just because re- we're because we're seeing the imagery, and then he's like, "So then this one girl came up, and she was like a ten. She was perfect, and her tits, man, were right in my face." Yeah, I love that idea. I want to read that part of the transcript, and then we arrive. <laughs> we arrive into there was one right? girl breasts like just, mountains. Like, I'm, listen, your your eminence. I'm not exaggerating. Lads, city is just. Just everywhere. But then we arrived at Lads Out Island, and I'm not yeah, exaggerating. It was insane. It was insane. <laughs> but it had to be Hopkins' voice. Yeah. To say the lads Chris... were out is, is, is to do Tahiti a disservice. Lads were yeah. never in on Tahiti. Christian falls for one of the local girls, the beautiful Mawatua, uh, who's one of the king's daughters, and it's not long before they're riding. Mm. The whole time... <laughs> no. The whole time, Bly and Fryer are walking around with big time incel energy, both getting more, <laughs> both getting more and more worried by the crew's behavior. Yeah, and yeah. everyone, what? everyone, everyone seems to have shacked up with a local lady and is punching way above their weight class. Yeah, and that... the idea of returning to somewhere like Portsmouth must seem like a very depressing notion. Yeah, why, why is Bly so mad about it? Because he's. He's the boss. It's his job to follow the rules of the of the British Navy. Yeah, as I, awful as they are, Friar's clearly gay, and Bly is just mm, you know loves the Queen or the King. I think in charge. I think as well. Bly may have seen this kind of crack before. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he like he knows kind of what's going. Like it's kind of a a going native story in a way. Mm-hmm. Like well in the. You know, structure of uh, what's the famous one, Heart of Darkness. Um, right. Yeah, it's just, but it, we're, we we actually do get kind of get to see the process of it all. You know. Um, yeah, that that is pretty similar to what. Yeah, that is essentially what happens. Is once they get their own island, that's it. They've gone full kind of Colonel Kurtz. That's what mm. Gibson has done. But we just we see the process rather than the ending. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Christian eventually gets his lady pregnant before Liam Neeson and his mates desert the ship, only to be recaptured and publicly whipped as punishment. They finally set sail on their way to Jamaica. Bly is very hard on the men, punishing them for small infractions. It's clear that resentment is building in the ranks. When Bly decides that they should try sailing around Cape Hook again, the crew has had enough. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's this kind of like this is essentially what makes it a a film about poor leadership. He kind of leans into the stiff upper lip and you know that uh, red right hand kind of kind of idea of leadership, which is just beat them bloody until they do they they do what you say, which is the, like I think at this point the the what I was trying to illustrate earlier really comes to the fore that this is kind of a microcosm look of what imperial rule leads to, you know? It feels like there's a shift in the tone of the film at this point because they really have to try and... They really have to state clearly here that, like, Bly is going too far. Mm. They kind of... Because, like, in previous versions of the film, I'm guessing, I haven't seen them, but Bly is extremely hard the entire time and they're quite sympathetic to the mutiny. So they need to at least build some sympathy here, some reasoning. Yeah, but like I would think that this is a much more interesting way of telling the story, you know. But even it feels like there is a kind of tonal shift, though. You notice from the score, the score's putting yeah. this kind of like, yeah, just a kind of strange chords playing over the top. It reminded me of the uh, section of the Muppets Treasure Island where they sing the excellent song "Cabin Fever." I don't think I've seen Muppet Treasure Island, so I'll have to add it to the list. I did. I watched Muppet Christmas Carol over Christmas there. That's just excellent. Yeah, it was solid. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of um, Muppet's Treasure Island. Billy Connolly as, um, what's the the guy who's in the inn at the start? Not Long John Silver. Billy Bones, yeah. Billy Billy Connolly as Billy Bones, and he's got a a great gag line in it where he goes, uh, Jim! Jim, beware, beware, beware. And Jim Hawkins goes, the one-legged man. He goes, running with scissors. I I like that because it's Billy Connolly, you have to do his voice. Yeah, yeah, there's no way you can. That's, that's, that's important. Mm-hmm. Totally. So Chris, uh, Christian and the others take the ship. Bly, Fryer, and a few of the, the officers are set adrift in a lifeboat. After a few harrowing weeks out at sea, the lifeboat finally arrives at the Dutch East Indies in Salvation. Mm. Meanwhile, Christian and the mutineers have little luck locating a new place to live. As the crew starts to doubt his abilities, they come across the uninhabited Pitcairn Island, setting the bounty ablaze on arrival. Back at the court-martial, Bly is exonerated for all blame. I want to uh, just dig a tiny bit into some stuff that happens sure. leading up to towards that end. There's a scene where they uh, try to go... Uh, um, ashore at an island near Tahiti that is mm. like that is terrifying uh, I, I you mean the the guys on the uh, lifeboat yeah exactly exactly uh, I thought that was like just proper scary you're we were having so much crack on lads out island that that uh, sequence kind of reminds you oh this is this is a very dangerous part of the world I guess I, I I didn't feel it was scary just because the violence. I this is a criticism I would lay mm. at the mission also is like violence of the time, mm. or violence in these nineteen eighties films wasn't portrayed in a way in a, with a, a scary reality that you might see in something more modern or even something older. I just think it, it, neither film carries a real threat of violence, even though one character there is kind of bludgeoned to death. Yeah, 
it still feels a bit fake the 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 like blood effects are not great etc like that was the 200 years ago version of uh, floating away in space like george clooney and gravity right. you know what i mean it's just you're so far from you know your mother <laughs> yeah that that's the insane part is yeah. like how many months it takes to for them to make these journeys that's what always surprises me. Anytime I, I I watched some of season one of the Terror. Have you watched any of that? I watched all of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just the idea that they're, you know, they're on a boat uh, going going through the Arctic, and they're like, okay, we have supplies to to survive for a year or two years. I just it's crazy to me that they have enough supplies that they're able to 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 survive for such long periods of time while sailing. Well, yeah, and be, but but also being so far away from everything. Yeah, like the section when they're on the lifeboat and they're just uh, sharing out pieces of pigeon, raw raw pigeon. It just like it 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 really takes it home for you. Also, I noticed there on that boat that the sailor called Purcell managed to keep his nineteen uh, eighties punk rock look. Which, yeah, yeah, which, he does look a bit out of place. Yeah, uh, yeah, which fair, but like he's yeah, he's literally got he's highlights. Definitely a punk. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought like. I quite like the pacing on this film as well. I don't think it like it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't drag at all, and it doesn't um, fake momentum towards the end. Mm. You know, I think ne- neither of the films do that. I think they follow fairly clear three act structures, mm. and yeah. Uh, yeah, they're just logically nicely made films that yeah. are both perfectly adequate. Yeah, the uh, the mission in particular, I mean, has uh, just such a cut and dry three act structure. Oh God! Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks yeah. to thanks to Big Bobby D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's great. Uh, of the two films, which did you prefer? I would say probably the mission, but the mission feels like a film where the sum is less than its parts. Like great cast, amazing mm. soundtrack, beautiful sim- cinematography. But ultimately, it's less affecting for me than it should be. And I lay the blame for that at the feet of Roland Joff, Joffy, Joff, Joff. Hmm, okay, well, sure. Jofferson, Joff Justofferson. <laughs> well, sure, we'll get into that now then, I suppose. I mean, how many films had Ro- uh, Roland Joff made at that point, you know? One, Killing Fields. Was his only film beforehand? Yeah, and that got seven Oscar nominations. I mean, it's a very good film. I've been meaning it's to solid. rewatch that. I, I mean, I, yeah, I watched it such a long time ago. I remember liking it well enough. Mm. I don't remember thinking it was amazing, but it certainly was. It was interesting and and well made. Screen, but, screen screenplay by Bruce Robinson of Whitnell and I fame. Oh yeah, uh, mm. but Roland Joff's career has gone to absolute dog shit since yeah. uh, the mission. In a bit, yeah, yeah. Some of a... his his films are have some of them are, are, are have been absolutely awful. No, yeah, now that I've seen them. Uh, well, yeah, some they've gotten quite a kicking, but I had a look at his filmography, and it's like, I mean, Robert De Niro with a sword out front uh, is just such an iconic image in in cinema. It's it's just strange to see where his career went. Uh, he although he was a producer on um, Super Mario Brothers, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so that's probably that's another high point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. Apart from that, I mean, it's just been. Yeah, done. I mean, he made he made a version of the Scarlet Letter with Demi Moore and Gary Oldman. I hate that book so crit- much. Critically, uh, a critical and financial failure. I think most of his films have been massive critical and financial failures, but he's still been able to get things done. I think one of the problems is uh, casting. If you look at some of the other films he's made, they've got really bizarrely miscast people. Hmm. And I think the mission, the mission suffers a little bit from this here too. 
because I think Jeremy Irons is perfect. Yes. I think he's perfectly cast. I think Robert De Niro is strangely, he's in his mid-80s mumbling his way through the film. Uh, Aidan Quinn as the brother, I think, was badly miscast. I think he was only cast because they got Robert De Niro. They're like, oh, well, we'll get Aidan Quinn as well. Mm. You've got the, what's the name of the Spanish plantation governor guy? Don. Oh, the guy who was dubbed throughout. <laughs> Liam, Liam Neeson, just, he, like, he looks like the stud he is. He's in between the, yeah. the bounty and the mission. He evol- He's fine. He There's evolved no problem with like, Liam Neeson. like a Pokemon over the course of those two movies. Yeah, he's he's turning into a proper actor at this mm. point. Like that, there's no problem there. But yeah, having like Chuck Lohmori from Goodfellas, who's walking around going like, "Hey, Robert De Niro's treating me like a like a half a bad <laughs> f word that we can't say." And so yeah, his voice was dubbed in by Fred Fred Melamed, who's S. Craig Zahler's mute, one of S. Craig Zahler's muses. Because he's in all of S. Craig Zahler's films. Ah, really? Uh, yeah, he did the voice of Don Cabeza. Ah, right. I, there you mm. go. Yeah, it's so obviously dubbed. It's it's unusual. Yeah. And it's like, I, I, I've kind of got become less disjointed to that because I've, I've watched loads of Jallo movies recently trying to figure out what the hell they're at. But I mean, that happens in them the whole time because... Like the you should the way they used to shoot films like that was just everybody speak their own language. Really, that's how they did it. It didn't. It did not matter. That's great. I like that. Mm-hmm. But I think I think the sound mixing on this film is all over the place because I don't know if it was because they were filming on in the real locations in the mm. mid nineteen eighties, but some of the and I was watching a, a proper good quality version of this film and I thought the sound mix was all over the place for yeah. in terms of dialogue but then of course you've got the score which is you know is one of the best things I've been listening to it since watching the film walking going down the street yeah it's beautiful just having the score playing in the background thinking it, about church it, yeah it's no it's, it's it's stunning and it's one of those um I mean, there aren't, I can't think of another example quite like this where the, it's just such a major element in the storytelling. Yeah, it's like, like another character. Like major. You're, you are, the, the, the theme of the film evolves in the score more than the characters. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's get to that story now. I mean, this is, yeah, the mission. 1986, apparently British, but it doesn't really seem so. In 1986, I'm going to say historical epic. I would go as far as to say that. Set in 18... 18- religious epic. Yeah, it's a religious epic. I mean, it is... Loved, loved by the Vatican. Apparently. Yeah, it's their number one religious film. Um, I actually ended up looking at the same lists as you probably uh, on that. Mm. And actually, all good movies, to be fair. Uh, yeah, so- number two was Road Trip. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the Vatican film list. It what it divides. It's got forty five films that are divided along the lines of religion, values, and art. And um, yeah, the mission is is highly rated on that. I don't think it's kind of a countdown sort of way. But I mean, for example, under art, they've got stuff as diverse as Citizen Kane and two thousand and one A Space Odyssey, The Wizard of Oz, Gaspar Noé's Irreversible. Irreversible is in there. Also, Ga- there? all Gaspar Noé's films are on yep. um, are on the values section of. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah, as along with Romper Stomper. Mm-hmm. Anyway, getting back to the mission, however, so the mission is the story. It's a, it, well, it begins with a title card that tells you that it's all true. It's based, it's uh, based around 
one true incident with a highly fictionalized uh, set of set of incidents dropped in the middle of it. So the real incident would have been the handing over of the of territories on which there were missions from the Spanish to the Portuguese in South America. This being significant because slavery was illegal in Portugal and the Spanish nobles in South America were up for the handing over of that land because they would then buy the they would then buy the slaves off the Portuguese I mean it seems like slavery was illegal but decriminalized much like marijuana in Barcelona back then you couldn't like buy or sell slaves but you could happen to have them and that would end up being okay anyway so then it begins with that this is a true story title card which you know I'm obviously in love with immediately and then we get some fellow dictating a letter, which immediately reminded me of some of the talking heads at the start of Band of Brothers. Mm. Mm. That's something that I would love to rewatch. I mean, yeah, yeah, I've done it enough, but I'll definitely do it again. Such a good and play, so it's got a similar device to the ones you love. This guy is writing a letter back to the Vatican, I think. And so this is, yeah, it's Cardinal Altamirano, who's played by Ray McAnally, mm. who's from County Donegal. Ah, there we are now. There you go. He's dictating a letter as to what ended up happening during the course of this film. And the first thing he tells us about is that uh, is that a priest, I can't recall his name and I didn't write it down, so I'm a silly owl sausage, has been the, martyred. The, the, the priest who goes over the falls? Yes. He's been martyred. Does he have a name? I don't believe he gets one. Well, I think, he I think m- he's just the priest who goes over the falls. Pretty much, yeah. It's a very striking image. So that that's the first thing we learned that there is some, there are some tribes at the at the top of a waterfall that he had been trying to convert. And then the next thing we we see him uh, nailed to a cross, a la Jesus, going over the falls. And in the same breath, in this dictation, we get the fir- like we get uh, the first shots of the missions that already exist there. Um, just big stone buildings in the jungle with loads of tribal kids playing violins and stuff. And it's yeah, fair it's very to s- it's fair to say it's just so beautiful. It's really really stunning. This won the award at Cannes. F- well, it won the Palme d'Or and it won um, the, the prize for best cinematography. And I think it's it's yeah, it's totally deserved. Just it's really just completely transportative and beautiful just in the yeah, opening yeah. moment so much so that actually when the credits pop up on screen in their weird 80s font it, it's a tiny it's a tiny little bit disjointing it's like have you ever seen um touch of evil yes but a million years ago well orson wells had a big row about that because he he felt he was going for such uh, realism that he didn't want any opening credits on the film at all because mm-hmm. he just felt it would take people out of it and that actually ju- just exactly happened to me because i was just gaping at this film and then all of a sudden in what by today's standard almost looks like comic sans and ms it just goes robert de niro and i was like oh all right back but anyway the only thing uh the only thing about watching the the priest go over the falls and later when Mm. some other people go over the falls towards the end it did look a bit like a kind of rubber dummy (laughs) if you go back and watch it (laughs) there's some of the movements just look look a little strange the boat at the end, I'll definitely give you that. But I think they shot it with enough of the right cuts that it was effective. For me, anyway. And then the score is already just doing gangbusters. So next thing we know, um, after this priest has been mar- uh, martyred, uh, Jeremy Irons, who is, yeah, as you said before, perfectly cast in this, uh, opts to ascend the falls 
the waterfalls to these tribal people to tr to have I don't know have the next bash at converting them let's say so he climbs up with his oboe and then plays a song that was written for him in the 1750s by Ennio Morricone called Gabriel's Oboe and uh, this is very much this begins the score playing such a big part in the in the in the actual story itself because when he first plays it he seems to at least play it live i know jeremy irons actually like he lives in ireland half the year and plays an awful lot of traditional irish music so it's quite possible that he was actually playing the oboe in this scene but this this is the the theme that the the whole score is built around and evolves as the story goes so i think this kind of this little score this little piece of music sort of represents i don't know the idea of new testament christianity uh, evolving in the jungle no there's this great blend between the traditional native music and then the influence of the of the choral of the of the the church choir mm. and how this this blends together and it shows how the church kind of works together with this with this native guarani culture although i'm sure looking back on it this is probably viewed as a big evil that the church undertook. I think everyone involved in this nowadays probably comes out looking like big evil imperialists. Well, no, I'm 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 going to disagree with you there because that would have been because you're a Catholic. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, no, that would have been uh, the the original idea of the Jes of the Jesuits. They were kind of like Gandhi like uh, people. They like uh, they intensely they were founded against the idea of empires using uh, Christianity to subdue native peoples. So, I, I, just on the point of the Jesuits, I would have to disagree with you there. I just think it's ballsy to go to another country and be like, "Hey, we have the truth. Mm. We're trying to. We're going to save you." But you know, but the Je each to their own. The Jesuits. That's the. But the Jesuits did not help people on the basis of converting them. They just helped people. If oh, they, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, if yeah. they wanted to, if they wanted to convert, all well and good. But they would but just. They just yeah, they would. They just... wanted them to put on clothes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just put. But get... no, I don't like the idea that they that they gave them shame or something. Fair enough. Yeah, you're probably right I want, there. I want lads out. I want lads out forever. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, he plays his little bit of um, music, and then we've got a beautiful pan around to uh, see all the native people approaching him as he's sitting on a rock playing the tune Gabriel's oboe, named after him. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful shot. And then one of them, rightfully so, takes Gab Gabriel's fucking oboe and breaks it over his knee. Prick. But, but then the rest, the, but then the other guys are all like, "Oh, so, we're sorry about him. He's yeah, a bit yeah. of a knob. He's we'll a bit of put it back together. He's him. a bit of a dick, exactly." Then the score tells us, "Ah, something good is happening. This is nice." So, cut to a while later, some gunshots and so forth, and um, we we uh, learn for the first time of a, a mercenary and slaver named Rodrigo Mendoza who makes a living kidnapping natives and selling them as slaves, and he's played by Robert De Niro. Now, for the parabolic-type storytelling that is going on, I would say Robert De Niro is well cast because it's like, okay, all of the characters are fairly thin, so you're very much relying on just the charisma of their look alone. And he just looks like a menacing guy with it issues in everything he's ever been in so i feel like that it works on that level i know what you're saying in that like i mean yeah irons kind of acts him off the screen really 
in this, but I think he is well suited to what he has to do here. But like, you know, the characterization is fairly thin because, I mean, essentially, he might be playing Rodrigo Mendoza, but he's not really. He's playing... He's playing Robert De Niro. Well, he's playing Kane. The wrestler that you're referring to. <laughs> That's the brother of The Undertaker. Who yeah, was, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was, you know, he, was, he scarred his face because his, uh, The Undertaker set fire to a car he was in when he was young and now he has to wear a mask. That's exactly wow. who you're referring to. You really remember the backstory. Of course I do. That's impressive. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, he's, this is like, okay, I mentioned it there, parabolic storytelling, but this story is essentially Old Testament brought to, brought to New Testament. That's what it is. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's the like harshness of the Old Testament as represented in Cain with the forgiveness of the resurrection. I know you're a Protestant, Andy, but maybe some of this stuff might be familiar to you, all right? Look, if you listen hard enough to me on this episode, there's a chance you might go to heaven. All I heard while you were talking there was you going, I'm poor and I like being poor and I think it's good that people are poor. Where are you getting this from? Is this... that's, it's, that's some general kind of anti, anti-Catholic anti doctrine I'm putting out there. Oh, right. I've never heard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh it... really? No, yeah. it's like wallowing wallowing in poverty. I think that's one of the uh, criticisms leveled at uh, Catholic culture, allegedly. I'm not, I don't like being labeled a, prosti- a prostitute. No. <laughs> wow, that was Freudian. I don't like being labeled a, a Protestant. I would, uh, I'd say I'm, I'm nothing. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't go for religion. Neither do I, really. But I, the, the, I, I, but I wasn't I, even raised in any religious way whatsoever. Yeah, I know. I had, I had very little religious education. But where I grew up, it's or just, general education. It's just fun to slag people off for being Protestant. Um, okay, I, fair enough. I'll take it. I don't mind that. But I'm just, I'm just, I just wanted to point out that anything I say is not sectarian, although it secretly is. But um, it's not. <laughs> I'm in no way representative of Catholicism. Oh, I know that. Yeah, I know yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So fair and right. Fine. I will happily it, but play it's, it's the just Protestant. Co- you just coincidentally happen to be doing a podcast with somebody who is interested in religions. All right. I am interested in oh, them. Okay. So I happen to know well, a lot. That's good. All so right, fine. I know nothing. I probably know much more than your average Catholic. So anytime. All I know. If I'm ever all t- I know. All I know are quotes from the film Road Trip. That's it. And that is enough. That's what Jesus Boston, would say. That is Austin, it. Austin, Massachusetts. As actually, Jesus one time said, um, "If all, if the only prayer you ever made in your life was a quote from Road Trip, that would be enough." Mm. That's a yeah, yeah. That's a Proverbs three eleven. That was right. That's that's the scene from the Bible where Sean William Scott gets milked. Is that correct? That's correct. That's exactly right. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. There's actually there's a great line around this time as well, uh, where um, the guy dictating the letter said, uh, says, "With an orchestra, the Jesuits could have subdued a whole continent." It was also around this time when I was watching. This is when Bobby D. Uh, Robert Rodrigo Mendoza is uh, kidnapping all the slaves. Uh, I thought to myself. My God, a Predator period movie would be really good. (laughs) I feel like they've kind of skirted around that in the Predator universe because in Predator 2, does he, at the end... um, Murtaugh. 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 (laughs) Exactly. We both went for the same thing, yeah. (laughs) Murtaugh gets uh, like a kind of like... I don't know what I don't know what the period is, but he gets like some old pistol given to him uh, by the predators. Oh yeah, because he beats their champion on the spaceship. Yeah. Predator Two is not as bad as um, no as as uh, other Predator it's, movies, it's, um, but uh, it's it, Stephen 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 Hopkins, uh, the a legendary shitty action director. 
Yeah, next we get to see, well, this is the real trust of the film. This is the Kane moment. We get to see Rodrigo Mendoza. He pops home and uh, hangs out with his brother, who he um, clearly loves very much, played by Aidan Quinn. Uh, uh, Felipe, as you said, was grossly miscast. Why do you reckon he was uh, badly miscast? I just didn't like him at all in the role. It just felt like he was from a different film as well. The lady who plays his uh, his love interest, Carlotta, Sherry Lungi, she was married to uh, Roland Joffe. Joff, Joff, Joffe. Have we ever found out how to say that name? Joffe. Joffe. I don't know if they were married, but they had a child together. Oh, right. I see somebody in, went straight... In the 1980s. I see somebody went straight to the uh, personal life section of his Wikipedia page. I don't know how I came across that, but... It was uh, probably on Wikipedia. Anyway, yeah, what transpires is that Rodrigo is, uh, has the hots for Carlotta. Carlotta, who arrives on the scene with them. The lad's not out, but squished together in the manner of the day. Um, yes. And uh, But then it transpires that she is actually doing frequent shagging sessions, to use your own vernacular there, Andy, with uh, Felipe, with young Felipe. And, uh, that is accurate. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Rodrigo finds out about this, uh, having had the hot for Carlotta and being the Cain archetype in the story, uh, just goes into a fit of rage, kills Felipe in a duel. It's fairly rough going. Mm. And then he has to take on Paul Bearer and the Undertaker. <laughs> Paul Bearer, my God. Uh, indeed, yeah. So then next up, um, Rodrigo Mendoza just does not want to live and uh, Jeremy Irons as Gabriel is approached by um I think the the plant uh, by another priest in the area and he he basically he wants him to just help uh Rodrigo Mendoza get back to his old slaver ways uh, yeah. be a more productive slaver again yeah they just they just don't want him like sitting moping around <laughs> they're just like get this fucking guy out of here yeah yeah because he's just just because he he hasn't been punished because he, he had a duel with yeah. with uh with his brother and yeah. so there's no he's punishing himself but by just sitting around going like he gets offered food and he's like i don't deserve food yeah 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 he wants they're just like get this fucking mopey twat <laughs> out of here so he wants penance. So what they figure yeah. out that he can do is, uh, the you know, drag the sh- the stone of shame. Yeah. And well, the, it looks more like the stone of triumph, actually. A uh, nice crisp stone is that cutters. A reference? Yes, it is. It's a stone cutter. Yeah. The, 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 it, when when I tuned out earlier, it was because I was thinking about the name Jeremy Irons because you remember that episode of The Simpsons where Lisa has a friend who's like more intelligent than her, and she goes over to her house. And her dad and and the and this girl play a game where one of them says the name of a famous actor, and they have to uh, rearrange the letters, and it it it, uh, it forms some phrase about the person's character. So they're like Alec Guinness, uh, genuine class, <laughs> and then they say to her Jeremy Irons, and she goes Jeremy Irons, Jeremy. Irons, and then he the, the 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 girl's dad hands her this ball and goes, "Mate, this is more your speed." Okay, every time <laughs> oh, I yeah, read, yeah, 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 I yeah, yeah. hear the name Jeremy Irons, I'm always thinking like, what was the anagram of Jeremy Irons that that uh, describes someone's character? So anytime anyone says Jeremy Irons in my head, I'm going, Jeremy Irons, <laughs> Jeremy Irons. Do they get an anagram for him in the end? 
No, it's never revealed. And I think I've even gone as far as Googling it, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there is actually a proper anagram. All right. Well, Gabriel gives Mendoza the penance of just dragging time and time again, like um, Atlas. I think it's the, no, Atlas holds up the world. Uh, what's the name? Prometheus. Yes. Like Prometheus is, just has to drag this big bundle of uh, heavy looking armor roped around him up and down a waterfall until he feels better about himself, which he does for ages. And then eventually he gets to the the top, surrounded by the tribes, people of the uh, Garani, where the um, <laughs> Guarani? What have I said it wrong? I, I think it's yeah. I think it's I think it's Guarani, but I like calling them Granny. <laughs> granny. Okay. So the, to gra- the, the Granny tribe. To, to the to the Granny tribe, the one that uh, he played Gabriel's oboe for earlier, and then one of the, one of the tri- I thought this was quite funny. One of the members of the tribe is just kind of like, "Well, come on." First of all, he recognizes him as a slaver, so he put, yeah. puts the knife to his neck, and then he just cuts um, the bundle off him. It falls down and throws it down into the water, and then uh, Rodrigo feels like he's saved. He feels like he's given himself forgiveness, and then he begins to act in a little bit of redemption. So he he becomes sort of their protector, and eventually he becomes a monk in this um in this missionary he figures out this is how he's going to thank them and then then we get uh, we're into the second act essentially so a cardinal is sent down to basically put the Jesuits in their place a little bit um, because there's been a treaty in Madrid, the one that I, I spoke about earlier, that'll give over the missionary territories to Portugal where slavery is legal, but the natives are getting protection inside the missionaries, inside the missions, so to speak. So the cardinal is sent down to kind of put them in line a little bit. And while he's there, he pretty much, you know, he falls in love with the missions, they're beautiful places, etc., etc., etc. Then Maury from Goodfellas uh, comes along and this is when the big sort of a trial sequence begins where he is prattling on about one thing and another and etc and etc. And I can't quite remember now what is the lie that Robert, that Rodrigo catches him in. Can you? You're a liar. I think it was about them saying we don't use slaves because they're mm. they're not they're not legal here. We've never used slaves, but of course uh, Robert De Niro's character was catching slaves for mm. the Spanish, so he's like, "This is a lie." Yeah, he said a liar. He says he's a liar, um, and well, just that really used to be the worst thing you can say to somebody. Yeah, he seems so shocked at mm. being called out for lying. He's like, how dare you, sir? Well, it is. It's really that, like, particularly in lawless places, uh, your word, like, if you ever watch, like, a, any Western worth its salt and somebody calls somebody a liar, like, that is, like, that's the, like, we, we have institutions that we can trust in these days. So you right. you can afford you can afford to lie or not lie or whatever because the institutions will catch you no matter what. So the currency of one's word does not matter so much. But, like, back in the day, Taking a shit on the currency of somebody's word and something like that getting around, that was your entire personal value, whether or not you had mm-hmm. you told the truth. So Maury from Goodfellas is, you know, he's enraged. He throws his wig on the ground, mm-hmm. um, which I, I presumably... He should actually have had a wig. That would have helped his, <laughs> bald, his bald head in this film. Yeah. It's not good if you're in South America. It's very warm. This is true. Sun. It's true. It, like I quite I, for some reason at this point of the film I kind of took note that um they're they're doing the the 
the thing where you ever like these guys are Spanish and Portuguese, but they're all they've all got English accents, and um, I'm fine with that. And like a few years ago, I remember when Chernobyl was made. Did you watch Chernobyl? The series, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, it was terrific. It was, it was terrific, it was and, and they just went with English accents, and that raised a few eyebrows. But like, I mean. You're just going to tell, the, like, again, it goes back to those Jello movies. Everybody used to just used to act in their own language and they would dub it into whatever they wanted, um, which isn't an ideal approach uh, just because it disjoints you a little bit. But yeah, I just noticed that they're doing this here, but everybody's called Rodrigo or Felipe or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine with it. I don't mind. English yeah, accents all around. I don't have any problem with that. I just, yeah, I, there were some scenes where people said bits and pieces in Spanish. I don't remember anyone speaking Portuguese at all, but. You know, it was clear. It would maybe with languages, or was it would have been a little clearer that there was some separation between the Spanish and the Portuguese. I guess they were just kind of grouped together. When the when the shit hits the fan, it should really be the Spanish that are doing it. But I think it's kind of grouped together as Spanish and Portuguese joint forces. Yeah, and actually, the action that that we see at the end of. Um... The film is a summation of about a two-year war of those kind of mm. battles. Anyway, um, the, uh, Jeremy Irons like in, instructs um, Jeremy. Sorry, Irons. Gabriel. Gabriel instructs Rodrigo to apologize. He says he needs to apologize. Oh, I was I was still just trying to figure out the uh, the anagram. Sorry, continue. <laughs> he instructs him to apologize. He says you've got to apologize. Um, any anytime anybody is uh, apologizing in anything, always reminds me of The Sopranos, where Ralphie Cipretto thinks he may need to apologize to Johnny Sack, and Tony Soprano goes to him, apologize, apologize. No, you're highly fucking outraged. Which I swat is what uh, Gabriel nice. is what Gabriel should have done. <laughs> the advice Gabriel should have given to Rodrigo here, but no, Gabriel is all about the love. He ends up apologizing, and then they uh, decide, okay, we're, they're going to inspect the mission. They do inspect the mission. Uh, the cardinal finds it they're they're amazing places, probably because the, they are all these tribe people singing Ave Maria. It's very beautiful. All the same, the score building alongside like Gabriel's oboe building like the exact same melody, just being interpreted a different way, getting, you know, um, overdubbing uh, choral se sequences onto it. Um, and that is telling the story of, of where we're at at this point, the score. Um, and then we find out that the whole him inspecting the mission business was a farce because it was always going to be a no from him because the I what he needs to do at this point, his instructions from the Vatican is to ensure the continuance of the Jesuits as an organization. And now this brings up some interesting history of the time, which is that like the real power in Europe was muscled over between monarchies and the church around like a thousand years ago, culminating around 1066, when the church really managed to step forward in power. But at the discovery of the new, of the new world, the church's power was kind of, it was up for, que it was up for questioning once again. And so the, the church did not exactly want to fall foul of these empire, of these empires when they were out in foreign country, because just the sheer wealth available from the new world was was the thing that was shifting the balance of power again so it, it, that was really what the cardinal was there to do was to rein the jesuits in so it didn't even matter if he liked the missions or not and it's at this point then that uh, liam neeson and rodrigo ask gabriel can they renounce their vows in order to you know engage in violence and defend the territories 
Gabriel refuses to give them permission for that. And then we get the battle sequences. That's probably the so the most famous imagery of the film is coming out. Now, it's still being shot amazingly. This is one thing I, like, I remember from years ago, not quite not being so impressed by these sequences, but just knowing what I know now and the fact that they shot these in the middle of the jungle on boats yeah. and so forth, they look just great. Really, really involving action. I don't know. I, I feel like they look nice, but I felt that overall the action scenes, there's it felt like there was no weight to anything. I thought shooting arrows looked ridiculous. Maybe that's what it looks like if you are on a boat firing an arrow, but I just felt there was no weight to it. And also similarly, like I maybe a criticism of the bounty is like the violence feels, I don't know. It just, it feels fake to me. There's the, the blood effects of the time are, are not very good. And I mean, you, I obviously, as you say, it's extremely difficult to film this type of physical action by static cameras everywhere, just turning to, to, to zoom in and follow people. Mm. I felt, I felt that the geography of the action scenes wasn't particularly clear. I, I wasn't a big fan of it, but, it did. Obviously, you're in these uh, beautiful locations, so it still looked nice. Mm. I thought there was actually, there was one particular sequence when um, Rodrigo and Liam Neeson, uh, they adopted, they're going to yeah, run. His, his character is called Liam Neeson. There's no question about that. They, like, they are going to help the natives fight. And there's a scene then when um, Spanish or Portuguese soldiers are rowing up the river and then just in the background we see emerge from the jungle on their own boat some of the natives with um with rodrigo and liam neeson in them i thought that was a particularly beautiful shot just seeing them sort of emerge from uh, the uh, emerge from the trees i thought was really really beautiful big liam killing it in these sequences there's another shot as well of um spanish portuguese soldiers um Climbing cliffs beside a waterfall. There's a lot of climbing by waterfalls here, but that particular... It's mad. That mm. is mad to, to mm. get up to that mission. You have to climb up a fucking waterfall. Mm. There's no other way up. I would just never, ever go up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, just I, say... I was thinking about that. I would never get up. They would have to fucking hoist me. We've got our big kerfuffle at the waterfall. Loads of fighting, and eventually the soldiers, it's unsurprisingly, seem to be getting the better of the natives because, you know, they got guns. And aside from all that, they actually get some natives to help them because they shoot fiery arrows at the mission as uh, Gabriel does the band from Titanic thing and uh, plays music as he's going down with the ship. <laughs> Wait, that was another scene that I really enjoyed. It's just when they're attacking, when they start firing the the burning arrows into the mission we see yeah jeremy irons is setting up his like prayer station i just i like the concept of that it reminded me of father ted of like is there anything to be said for saying another mass <laughs> oh god i love saying mass it's like that's his solution is he's like he's just he's 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 got he's got a blackboard and he's written mass on it with a big cross <laughs> Well, that is his, that's his going action as this goes on, because he has explicitly yeah. said to Rodrigo, look, I'm not fighting, I'm all about the love. So he, his move is to walk towards the troops with a big cross. And he gets shot, and uh, rather symbolically, one of the native boys picks up the cross and continues walking. Thus is ingrained the whole churchy message of the picture. Big Liam gets shot, unfortunately. Um, I think uh, I think Rodrigo gets shot as well, and he gets, he, he his one of the last things things he does while alive is he gets to see father gabriel go down in a sort of a noble manner now let me explain to you 
uh, the the real the like the subtext going on here is like Robert De Niro is Old Testament. He is wrath and vengeance and stuff like that. And uh, Jeremy Irons is redemption, which is why even when he dies, th- that's what the whole symbolism of the resurrection is: is that you can fuck up as much as you can, uh, as <laughs> you can fuck up as much as you want, but you can always come back from it. That's the idea. It's like personal redemption, your personal confession. Uh, ironically, like mo- a lot of biblical scholars would like read the Jesus stories as a way to try and get the the Bible out of the hands of the church. That's a big reading of it. Like, is that you're your own personal savior kind of thing. Now the mission doesn't sell that so much, but like, that's really, really what they're going for then when Rodrigo, when everybody's dying anyway, and you you get to see De Niro sort of die while being wrathful and violent. And uh, Father Gabriel dies while acting out of love. And then, you know, one of the natives picks up the cross. That's the whole thing that they're really going for. Uh, yeah, well, the, also the reason the the uh, Robert De Niro gets gunned down is because he chooses to help an injured child rather than pulling the string on the trap on the bridge that would have blown up a bunch of guys. So that's right. He, yeah. he ultimately makes a choice to yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of he chooses love over violence, and yeah, he he by your logic redeems himself. Yeah, so there's uh, during this gradual by your logic, by your <laughs> Jesus. insidious Catholic logic. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I, I realized as soon as I said it that was proud. That's not what I meant to say. What I meant is like yes, according to the theory that you lay out, which I also agree with. Well, yes. also like, and then there is an uh, a very appropriate considering the more recent history of the church, a little bit of mise en scene where even after all the redemption. You see a little boy's penis as he hops into a, a canoe. There's quite a lot of uh, boy penis on show. Oh, don't think I didn't notice. I, I I have a blog to write. There's one uh, line just at the end of it where we cut back to the cardinal and he says to um, Maury from Goodfellas, like, um, did you really have to do this? Did it really have to end like this? And I couldn't help but be reminded of the episode of Peep Show where Jeremy yeah, eats, where they eats the dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, it's just, and Mark says to him, did you have to eat it in the end? And Jeremy says, I've been thinking about that a lot myself. And I think that, yes, in the end, I did have to eat it. That just straight out reminded me of that. God, I must yeah. rewatch all of Peep Show immediately. What a masterpiece. Yeah, I'm all over stuff like this. I'll watch this again. I hadn't watched it in years because, uh, I don't know, I just didn't remember enjoying it so much when I was younger, but I enjoyed it an awful lot this time really really got a lot out of it thought it was a great film i liked it i think it's good but like i say i think it's less than the sum of its parts and as i said earlier i blame roland joffy joffs for that i just think with a better director the same script robert bolt's script better director maybe tweak the casting a little i think it would have it would be a solid classic but the things like the music and the 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 imagery are obviously top top notch do you know who direct the shit out of this would be Mel Gibson? That is accurate, yeah. Uh, he'd, re- he'd really make a great meal out of this. Yeah, in general, very good week for me. Anything historical, I'm all over it. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed both of these. Which would, you, which would be your preferred? Probably The Mission because of the score, I think I'd mm. have to give it to Mine would be The Bounty, I'd say. That. I'd go more than a Boys on Boats. And also, I think Anthony Hopkins just does a, does a great job in that. I really, really enjoyed him in the film. Yeah, despite, yeah, 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 just all the lads, all the lads. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right, so what are you going to bring to the table this week? 
So I decided to go for a film that passed me by a few years ago, and that's J.C. Chandor's 2014 film starring Oscar Isaac, A Most Violent Year. Have you seen it? I have. I've seen everything J.C. Chandor has done. Uh, I've seen everything everyone's done. Uh, well, no, I have not. I have not seen uh, the 1999 Claire Denis film, ba- kind of based on uh, Herman Melville's novel Billy Budd. It's called Beau Travail. Travail. Beau Travail. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Well, right. or let's give it its proper English title, Good Work. Good Work, indeed. Yeah, Good Work, uh, which is a nice 90-minuter. I really hope this is good, but I mean, this week... I really like my attempt to watch um, an arty film directed by uh, a lady uh, fell flat and I don't mean to group them all in together but Claire Denis would often be named in the same breath as the director of um, The Headless Woman whose name I can't recall right now and I've never seen a Claire Denis film either and I've heard me neither I've heard she's a wonderful director so I am really looking forward to this plus it's 90 minutes what are you going to do that's the fact that it's 90 minutes is really swaying things for me (laughs) thinking like wow Maybe I would like to watch this 90-minute film. Okay, so it's a two or some, or like at the top of a, a top of a, no, wait, is this a boat or a top? It's the top of a building, I think. I'll go two with, or the building top? I'll go with the two. Okay. It's two. Congratulations. Yurt, all right. Okay, do you want to hear what you would have won? Please, go ahead. Sticking with the urban crime sort of genre and also uh, something to do with um, waste disposal, I was going to um, shovel up uh, 2008's Italian crime film, Gomorrah. Oh, I was, I've been planning to watch that for a long time. Yeah, me too. Uh, especially since living in Italy, I was going to check it out, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Apparently so the, be it. Apparently the, um, the TV series is excellent as well. And I, yeah, I, I, I hear it's good. I read the book many, many years ago. Uh, okay, but uh, that's what you could have won. But what did I win to watch with Beau Travail? I, I decided to opt for Claire Denis' first English language film, 2018's High Life. Oh, the uh, science fiction uh, one. Yeah, science fiction, horror, science fiction horror film starring Robert Pattinson. Ah, oh, a bit of Orpats. Yeah. Never miss with a bit of Orpats. Okay, cool. This, yeah, uh, it looks uh, good. Nice. Well, all right then. Um, until, uh, until next week, I'm going to say... Uh, uh, adieu. Okay. Uh, I am going to go and build a time machine to travel back to uh, 18th century Tahiti. Mm-hmm. That's where you'll find me. <laughs> <laughs>